Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. If you're not my wife, you may be seated. This is my adorable, precious, and incredible wife. Amen. Hey, Lee, we are excited to be with you and excited to be in the presence of the Lord. And um, we really enjoyed the service this morning. And we're going to get right into the Word of God now. And uh, most of you who have seen us speak over the years know that our call is the meat of God's Word, the deep stuff. So this goes pretty deep. So Lord, bless your already blessed word to our hearts, Lord God. Strengthen us. Oh Lord, hide your servant behind the cross. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on all of us, Lord. Hide me behind the cross that all might see Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, anoint these lips of clay with a coal from the altar that you alone might be glorified because that is why we are here. And Lord, we pray this with just one goal in mind, that the name of Jesus might be uplifted above every other name. And it's in his name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. The Lord is clear in his word that there are various seasons that we go through in life and various seasons that are according to his will. And it's very important if we are to thrive in the Christian life and in life as a whole, it's very important for us to understand the seasons of the Lord. Let's turn together to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. And our main text is going to be out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verses 1 through 8, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8. And the title of this morning's message, this afternoon's message, is Understanding God's Seasons. Understanding God's Seasons. And uh, some of you may be looking at Ecclesiastes up on the screen. If you're looking for it in the Bible and having uh, difficulty finding it, um, it's on page 1055 of my Bible. <laughs> Hallelujah. Understanding God's seasons. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. Some translations say a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And what we need to understand, again, is that in the Lord's calendar, there is a season for everything. And one of the reasons, really two of the reasons we're preaching on this and that this is so important is because, number one, we need to appreciate that fact. 
we need to try to adapt to whatever season God has us in and not to fight against it, but if it's God's will to appreciate that season, which leads into the second reason why we're focusing on this, and that is we need to try to get the most out of every season God has for us. So it's just so vital. I mean, it's much like imagine. I mean, it's not that hot yet. I mean, that's, you know, we're in the beginning of June, but get into July and August and it gets a lot hotter. And, you know, you don't want to have this huge overcoat on in July or August. You are not going to get the most out of the season. If you have a, a marathon race or any kind of race that takes place in July or August, if you want to win the race, you probably do not want to put on this huge overcoat. You are not going to get the most out of the season. In fact, you are going to sweat unnecessarily. And that's very symbolic because unless we appreciate the seasons of life and the seasons of the Lord, and unless we try to get the most out of each season, what's basically going to happen is that we are going to sweat unnecessarily. Amen? Amen. Now, so that's why in verse 1 it begins, there's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. Well, that brings us to verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Now, it's interesting that it says a time to be born and a time to die. And one of the most profound teachings of, of Jesus is that as he came along and everyone thinks in terms of, okay, you're born and then many, many years later you die. And uh, the Lord came along and said in John chapter 3, basically what he was saying, if you want to get the most out of life, the key is actually to die first and then to be born again. I mean, that is so contrary to human logic, and it even involves our trip to heaven, doesn't it? That we, we do have to die. I mean, there are a couple of except, possible exceptions in, in Scripture and so forth, uh, Elijah uh, being one. But, um, but basically, the vast number of billions, almost everyone, you have to die first and then you're born into the full experience of the life that God has for us in glory. But we have to be willing to die first. And we have to die also continually in the sense that if we're to get the most out of the Christian life, we have to die to self to really experience the full Christian life. Now, this uh, raises some interesting points because um, when we are born again can be a, a, a source almost of a little bit of struggle in, in the Christian life, especially in terms of when we are born again. Some people are very self-conscious about when they have been born again. Some people feel like, wow, why did I wait so long to come to Christ? I mean, even me, you know, I, I was raised in an atheistic family. I was not raised in a Christian family. My, my parents taught me nothing about Jesus. They even taught me that Easter was the day that Christ died and they said, the testimony of Jesus is just like Socrates, too bad that such a wise man should be put to death. And that was the story of Jesus. I was never taught about the, the resurrection because my parents were so thoroughly atheistic. And thankfully, I eventually came to the Lord as a senior in high school. Very dramatic uh, conversion that just overnight, literally, changed my life. And uh, But... 
Even for myself, as a person who came to the Lord as a senior in high school, I thought, ah, I wish I had been serving the Lord all of these years, or at least when I was of age to be able to, since the time I was of age, to be able to understand the gospel. So I know a lot of people may not view a senior in high school as being late to come to the Lord, but that's how I viewed it. And a lot of people who come to the Lord much later than that, especially, maybe they come to the Lord when they're 25, 30, 40, 50, 60, and beyond. I, um, uh, Haley and I have a dear friend of ours who came to the Lord very late in life. I think she was just about 60, I think she was about 60 uh, when she came to Christ, and um, she just really regretted, you know, those 60 years. She had raised five kids, but not in the ways of the Lord, and she really regretted that. Now, it's wonderful how it worked out uh, through her praying and just loving on them. Thankfully, all five ended up coming to Jesus. It was really, really beautiful, but uh, she was just the, the feeling that, oh, only I had known the Lord earlier, I could have raised them in the ways of the Lord. And we probably have some people like that. You came to the Lord relatively late in life, maybe not 60, but maybe 25, 30, 40, what have you. And you think, ah, oh, how I would have lived life differently had I received the Lord at a younger age. And it's rough. It's rough to look back over that and think, oh, how you might have done things differently. Now, it also works the other way. Some of us, we receive the Lord very early, a lot earlier even than I did. Maybe we receive the Lord even in our youth, and then it can work another way. We think, wow, I've known the Lord all these years, and what have I done for the Lord? You know, what have I accomplished? My goodness, after all these years of knowing the Lord, I certainly should have done more for the Lord than this. And the enemy can kind of play with our mind either way. You know, it's either too late or too early. I mean, uh, most of us, you know, we might not think we were saved by the Lord exactly at the right time, right? We think either too late or too early or what have you. But the enemy kind of works on us, and we just need to realize that, you know, God gets through in his time. Amen. In fact, I, I didn't give uh, this verse to be picked up uh, on the screen, but all the merrier because uh, this particular verse maybe we'll remember it more when it's not on the screen because it's very significant. It's out of Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, and it reads, But when the set time had fully come, or many translations say in the fullness of time, I love that phrase, in the fullness of time, meaning at just at the right time, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Hallelujah, in the fullness of time. So I know that, yeah, you know, I was raised as an atheist, but God used my experiences prior to coming to the Lord to make me much more effective in ministry than I otherwise would be. And re really, it's true of so many of us. God used that time, and he uses it, and he will use it. And we need not to be focused on the past that we should have accomplished more or we should have come to the Lord sooner or what have you. We need to look at the now. Amen. In the fullness of time, the Lord saved us, and we need to look directly ahead because God has plans. Amen. 
Amen. And we need to be right in the center of those plans, not focus on so-called missed opportunities, because God uses it all. Amen? Amen. So the Lord looks at things so differently than human beings do. And praise God, he uses it all. Now, continuing on in our uh, main text, uh, returning now to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says also in the second part of verse 2, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Now, uh, this also is an interesting statement because we need to realize there's a time to be doing what we might have been doing for a while, but sometimes it's, it's the time to uproot, and we need to realize this. It may be, the, for example, the job we have. Maybe it is for the rest of our lives. Maybe. But no guarantees. Sometimes the Lord has us at a particular place for a particular length of time, and then it's time to do another job or to be open to another aspect of ministry. Maybe we have been active in a particular kind of ministry in the church, but and we may continue in that. Maybe we're going to be working with children for you know a long time or whatever we happen to be doing. But it may be at some point that the Lord says, well, you may not feel that gifted in that area, but I want you to say yes to that as well, either in addition or instead or what have you. We need to be open to the Lord. And I remember it, early in my Christian life, I was really struggling with this because a number of my family members wanted me to really live at home. And I knew that the Lord had other things for me. And I was living in a Christian house at the time. And I asked the minister who was in charge of the house, what about this? I mean, is there a scriptural basis for saying no to my relatives who want me to uh, remain at home even as an adult. And he gave me this verse out of Luke chapter 4 and verse 43. It says, but he said, I, this is Jesus speaking, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to other towns also because that is why I was sent. We need to be open to the Lord for the seasons of life. There's sometimes he has us doing what we're doing now, but all along the road we need to keep, just as we mentioned in the first message, we need to keep those ears open to the Lord because you never know what God is going to do. And, uh, boy, I want to be at the cutting edge of what God is doing. I don't want to be left behind. I don't want God to be moving over there and I'm saying, gee, I wish I had moved or I wish I had changed or what have you. Of course, you can go the other extreme as well. There are some people who what I call kind of tailgate the Lord. Okay, just like, you know, when you're driving, there's some people who tailgate and it's just kind of like, oh, I bet God wants me to do this. Well, God doesn't want them to do that at all. There's some people who cannot stay in the same church or at a different church every week, okay? And it's like they're tailgating the Lord. It's they're, they're, they're not going ahead of God, but they're just kind of waiting. Oh, maybe you want me to go here this week. Maybe there that week. Maybe here. And, uh, but we can't tailgate the Lord. I want to be where God is. Because every time that I'm not where God is, that's what leads to trouble. Amen? Verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. Now, it's interesting that it says uh, a time to tear down and a time to build. You know, I think many times we, we love growing spiritually in those areas in which 
uh, we need to grow. But we need to realize, and we love especially growing in strengths, growing in areas where we're already strong, but many times, and hear me with this one, many times it is just about as important to grow in our weak areas as to grow in areas where we're already strong. Now, it's more enjoyable to grow where we're already strong, and that's why people get out of balance, because, boy, they, they, they love growing where they're already strong. They love seeing the progress, but sometimes it's just as important to grow where we're weak. In fact, um, I really believe, how many believe God has a sense of humor? I really believe God has a sense of humor, and, and I think one of the most important things is to be able to laugh at yourself and to laugh at not just ourselves but ourselves, plural. Now, obviously, I come from the United States, and I, I do think Americans many times are quite humorous. Okay, Some people are very defensive about their nationality. You say any little thing, and they get defensive. I, I'm not that way. I, I think you know Americans are pretty hilarious sometimes. And uh, one of the times I discovered this is I was preaching um, in Denmark. And a um, long, long time ago, even before I met my adorable, precious, and incredible <laughs> wife. And I was ministering in Denmark, and I was asking my host, who was also my interpreter, I asked him, wow, I just, you know, I love Copenhagen. Just, wow, this is, must be one of the best-kept secrets in Europe. Because a lot of Americans, when they, they think of where to visit in Europe, of course, they think of London, they think of Paris, they think of Rome, they, you know, may go Frankfurt or Berlin or something, you know, or if they want to go farther east, Moscow, or, you know, there's just certain cities that are the first to come to mind. And Copenhagen usually isn't one of the foremost. It's smaller, of course, that's part of it. But so I was asking him uh, about how many Americans uh, visit Copenhagen. And he said, oh, actually, quite a number of Americans uh, visit Copenhagen. In fact, look over there. There's an American right over there. And I, 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 <laughs> I thought, how do you know that is an American? And uh, because, you know, we Americans, I tell you, we have uh, some of the most out of condition people. We have some pretty... <laughs> Heavy people. I told you I can laugh at Americans. We do. We have some. Whoa! No wonder you. No wonder you go to an all-you-can-eat place. Okay. We have. We have those. And but we also have some Americans are just so into being in condition, especially in their upper body. So I, you know, I said, "How do you know that's an American? Do you know him?" He said, "No." And I said, "Well, how do you know he's an American?" He said, "No Dane has a neck and chest like that." Okay. And sure enough, he was an American. We found out later he was an American. So we we kind of have a joke in the United States because some Americans are really into bodybuilding, especially their upper part of their body. And a little there's a little joke, a cartoon that was written about Americans that here's this guy, he is really built in the top, but he has these skinny legs. Okay. And then his trainer says, you know, I think it's time we need to work on the bottom part. Okay. And 
the Christian life is like that. You know, there's some people who love to grow in their strengths, and spiritually speaking, they have a neck this size and, you know, a spiritual chest like this, but, uh, whoops, the legs are pretty skinny, and it looks kind of odd, and we need to work on our weaknesses too, not just our strengths. Amen. And uh, sometimes also, it says a time to tear and a time to build. Sometimes you have to tear down before you can build. Because let's face it, uh, certainly true uh, in the UK. It's becoming increasingly true uh, in the United States. But if you're going to build a really nice new building, increasingly so, especially in a place like London, if that's going to happen, if you're going to really add to the skyline or build a, a nice new building, unless you go to the outskirts of town, if you want to do it in central London, you've got to tear down something first. Okay, It's just reality. There's not much space that is unused. Same thing in New York. Okay, They're building all kinds of new skyscrapers in New York these days. But in every case, because New York is just so built up, they have to tear down something first often true in the Christian life as well. If we want to grow in a certain area, like it or not, we have to tear down something first. We have to crucify the flesh. We have to get rid of certain habits in our Christian lives in order to see God build something new. And it may not always be pleasant to experience, but it is reality. Amen? Amen. Then we go on to verse 4. It says, a time to weep and a time to laugh. And it's interesting that it says a time to weep. You know, there are times when it is appropriate to weep. I think many times, you know, especially as I look at Scripture. Sometimes when I examine Scripture, I think of it in terms of the Lord laying out many times the ideal life. And, of course, there's the modern-day life. And sometimes they just don't match. And one of the things that I notice in life versus the Bible is we don't allow much time for mourning, mourning the loss of a loved one or just, we don't. In, in, in the Bible, it's clear they had sometimes extended periods of time to mourn over the loss of someone who was very valuable. And in the Western world, it, you know, especially with employers, it's kind of like, okay, we'll give you a few days off and basically then get over it, time to come back to work. I mean, there, sometimes there's that kind of an attitude as if you can get over the loss of a very close loved one within a matter of days. We don't allow enough time to mourn. But also, on the other side of things, sometimes we can overdo it. Sometimes we get to feeling sorry for ourselves. Sometimes, I don't know if you have this term in England or not, but we have a term called pity party, okay? And you just kind of feel sorry for yourself. And my thinking, if you're going to have a pity party, at least send out invitations. <laughs> but sometimes people feel sorry for themselves. And I'm, I am going to give two sports illustrations in this sermon. Now, the first one refers to American sports, but I haven't forgotten British sports. Toward the end of the sermon, I have one regarding Manchester United. Okay, so... <laughs> I won't touch that one. That, that can be, I'm sure there are all kinds of opinions on Manchester United, but we'll leave that for another day. 
Um, but in any case, this one is about American sports. Most of us may have heard of uh, Tom Brady because uh, he is one of the more outstanding American athletes in, in American football. He's the quarterback of the New England Patriots and has won, I don't know, six Super Bowls, something like that. I mean, it's really quite amazing. And um, it's interesting because, he, to my knowledge, he's not a Christian, but he does have some uh, set of values. Uh, and so sometimes he does things that you think, oh, wow, that's cool. More people need to learn from that. And here's one of them. Uh, there was a time when there was a player on the Patriots who was a very good player. And uh, I'm sh uh, he didn't get named to the all-star team. You know, I'm sure you folks have all-star teams in a number of sports where the best play each other, or the best are named, or what have you. And this fellow on the team thought he should have been named to the all-star team, and he wasn't. So he was just really down. He was just kind of sitting, and his head was hunched over like so. And he was literally crying, okay? He was mourning his, you know, what he considered to be, you know, something that was horrible that happened to him. And he was literally crying. So Tom Brady saw that he was crying, and uh, he, he went up to him and he said, why are you crying? This is, I've never seen you like this. And the fellow responded, because I didn't get named to the all-star team. I deserve to be there. The guy they named, I'm better than he is. I deserve to be on the all-star team. And then Tom Brady said to him, that's all you're crying about? Because you didn't get some accolade that you sought, some recognition that you sought? Don't cry. It is not about individual accolades. We are not here for individual accolades. We are here for championships. And you know what? That's true in the Christian life as well. You know, sometimes we get down because someone at work or someone in the church or someone in our neighborhood or someone in our community hasn't given us the recognition we feel we've deserved. We somehow feel like we got the short end of the stick that we think should be going better for us individually than is currently the case. But we're not here for ourselves. We're here to march on for Jesus. We are here for the kingdom of God. We are here so that God wins championships. That's why we're here. So yeah, there's a time to mourn when you lose a loved one. There's a time to mourn. But let's not feel sorry for ourselves because that's not why we're here. We're here to glorify Jesus. And you know, it's interesting also because sometimes when we think it is the time to mourn. It's not. You know, I remember years ago, once again, before I met my adorable and precious and incredible wife. You'll know where she sits by the end of this message, okay? Um, but anyway, I had a, I had a roommate. And uh, one day the roommate knew I had had a, just a horrible day. And yet he saw, I was in missionary evangelism, I was, still, I was preaching even back then, and I was working on a, a sermon. And he said, you know, how can you be working at a, on a sermon on a day like this? You have had a horrible day, a disastrous day. He said, if it were me, I'd just be up in a corner, just moping and, you know, discouraged, and you're just working ahead on the sermon. You know, how can you do that after such a horrible day? And I told him, well, there are a number of reasons why I can do that. And 
try to do it after uh, a horrible day. First of all, it's just a waste of time to mope. Second is that uh, by focusing on the sermon and asking God to help me uh, put together the sermon, it gets my mind off of that huge trial. And thirdly, God's plan is going ahead, so I might as well go ahead with it. You know, there's a time to mourn, and a lot of times when we think it's time to mourn, it's not time to mourn. In fact, sometimes we need to even rejoice by faith. There's a tradition uh, Haley and I have as a family uh, that goes way, way back that many times we rejoice by faith. Because a lot of times there are a number of verses that really talk about the importance of basically rejoicing by faith or at least recognizing that the downtime will not last forever. For example, Psalm 126 and verse 6. Psalm 126, verse 6, which I think I did give as a slide. There we go. And it says, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. (laughs) Hallelujah. Praise God. That's the promise of the word of God. Now notice, it says, those who go about sowing. Okay, it says those who go weeping, carrying seed to sow. Meaning it's not just saying, well, anyone who weeps is going to end up fine. That's not what the scripture is sharing. It says those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow. Meaning even sowing seed when in their natural, they don't feel like it. Just like I was working on a sermon in myself, I didn't feel like working on a sermon, but I was sowing that seed anyway. The promise is they'll return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So the key is to sow the seed sometimes when we least feel like it. I mean, even if you think of sowing and and reaping, uh, farmers, for example, you know, it's, it's interesting because, of course, there's a harvest season and then there's time to sow the seed. And when do, you, when do farmers feel like sowing the seed? It's when they see the harvest and they say, whoa, this stuff works. Let's sow some more. Wrong time to sow. No, you sow when weather's still not fantastic, kind of cold, kind of nippy. The ground might be hard and resistant, but you You dig up the ground and so forth. You sow the seed when you least feel like it, perhaps looking at the ground and and the weather. But that's what yields the results. And we need to be that way. We need to sow the seed. So if you're in a situation right now, you're discouraged, go buy some seed, spiritually speaking, and sow that seed. That is what it is to sow by faith. And then we also need to remember... Psalm 30, the second part of verse 30 and verse 5, 30 and verse 5, second part, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Hallelujah. We need to sow that seed and believe. Now, as I mentioned, uh, our family has a tradition along these lines that many times we celebrate by faith. And it actually um, started... Years ago, 
when I have a, other than my wife and our children, I have a best friend who we, we say of each other that it's insulting to say we're brothers. We say we're twins. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's how close we are. We're so close that I almost never get pains in my stomach. So if I do, I think, oh, I wonder if Wayne's going through something. And I give him a call on the phone, and most of the time he is if I get a pain in the stomach, and it's kind of similar with him. Something will happen really odd physically to him that he never gets, and then he calls me on the phone and says, are you okay? And more often than not, I'm going through a major trial. I mean, we are just very, very super close. In fact, when I went and had just met my wife, I returned home, and there was a letter from Wayne that said, I prayed that on this missions trip you would find your wife. First time he had ever said that, and I said to myself, it's over. <laughs> if Wayne was praying that way, it's over. We're going to get married, okay? And, uh, but that's how close we are. So he was really going through a major, major trial. And we just cried together over the trial that he was going through. But I also know one thing about Wayne. He has a sweet tooth, big time. And so I said, you know, I know this is bad, Wayne. I know it's bad now, but I tell you, let's celebrate by faith. Let's celebrate ahead of time. Let's, I want to buy you a big ice cream cake. And let's celebrate. And he said, let's do it. So we bought him a big ice cream cake. He ate most of it just in one evening. I mean, he needed it, okay, with what he was going through. And it was just, and he was so happy and so joyous. And ever since then, this is what we do. And the most recent case is, uh, oh, I guess it's been a few months ago now. Uh, our whole family was going through it. All three of our kids, Haley, me, we were all going through different things. And just things were not going well. And I was sitting at home with, with two of our sons, and they were kind of down, and I wasn't feeling the greatest either. I said, let's celebrate by faith. How about I treat everyone to a latte, and let's celebrate in advance. And our, my, my kids said, yeah, let's do it. And off we went. And uh, as we got the lattes, Haley texted us like about five minutes after we started drinking lattes and said, trial solved. And then uh, our youngest son, well, he was discouraged because he was trying to get this job. He wanted one particular job to open up, and it didn't seem to be opening, and there were all kinds of delays in his job situation. Very next day, we want you for an interview, and that's where he works now. And that was just one thing after another. Then another son of ours who wanted a better job, he was praying for this better job, wasn't coming through. And right after that, they said, we want to interview. That's where he works now, and we were just celebrating by faith. So when we say, when the Bible says a time to mourn, okay, may not be what we think. Sometimes we need to rejoice by faith ahead of time, and there are times to do that to say, "Hey, Amen." And hey, if you want to go out for a latte or an ice cream cake after the service, I say, "Hallelujah." 
And all the ice cream places will wonder, how come everyone's wanting ice cream cakes all of a sudden? And all the coffee places will be going, oh my goodness, what is this between pastor mentioning coffee leading up to this and saying, you know, the Lord, the Lord pays, but we have to press the button. And then someone else, another preacher saying, let's go celebrate with a latte. Coffee sales in Cambridge have skyrocketed. I say hallelujah. Praise God. So there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn. And yes, dance by faith. Celebrate by faith. There's a time for that as well. Amen. Hallelujah. Verse 5. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. It's interesting. Verse 5, beginning a time to scatter the stones and then a time to gather. You know, there, there's sometimes when we just need to ask the Lord, um, what do you want done? What needs to be done? You know, sometimes we're, we're seeking out God's will and we make it to be such a religious and difficult exercise. A lot of times it's easier than we think. You know, we don't have to necessarily, just like Elijah experienced, uh, we don't have to hear thunder and lightning type responses. A lot of times just a still, small voice. And sometimes if we just ask the Lord, I think this is one of the most valuable questions a Christian can ask is, Lord, what needs to be done that isn't getting done? And Lord, if you've called me, I'm up to the task. And it's as simple as that. A lot of times God wants to fill in the gaps and there are needs that just aren't getting met. And then suddenly, wow, God answers. So there's a time to scatter and step out like that. Just hallelujah. And, and, you know, maybe sometimes if we ask God that question, maybe it won't be God's will in the long hell. But sometimes we find out by doing it. So, for example, maybe there's a, a missions trip. There's a church missions trip, and we're kind of thinking, and it's a particular kind of mission trip to, with a particular kind of function, and we're thinking, well, is that the kind of ministry I'm to go in or, or not, you know, long term? And, well, sometimes the best way to find out is go, okay? And then you go, and, and sometimes you say, wow, this is so wonderful. This is so who I am in Jesus. I want to do this again. And then other times, eh, that was nice, but not for me. And you know what? Both are cool. In both cases, we've gotten one step closer to understanding what God's call is. Sometimes you just have to do it. But then there's also a time to gather where you focus. Sometimes people are just so spread out. And this can happen even in ministry. You're just doing so many different things and you realize, you know what? I'm not given some individuals maybe in, in our families, maybe among the people we need to be focusing on. We're not giving them enough time. And sometimes we just need to focus. And there's a time for each. There's a time to scatter and just say, hey, let's see what happens if I step out and do this. And then there are other times we just need to focus and realize, hey, this is where I feel gifted. This is where I feel anointed. And this is what I'm doing. And praise God, there is a time for each one. And we need that, you know, so much of the Christian life is just being in tune with God. And we get in tune for, uh, with God, with being into the word of God. Because God's not going to contradict his word. We get in tune with God with prayer. You know, so many people these days are, 
into shortcuts with God. I mean, if you, uh, if you want to write a best-selling Christian book, I'll tell you the title to write because it's what people want. How to be a holy Christian in 24 hours. I mean, that's what people want to hear. It's what I call microwave Christianity. You know, just pop the Christian in the microwave oven and go, boop, 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 boop. But it doesn't work that way. You know, there's an old phrase, it takes time to be holy. And it does. We need to be in tune with God. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And that can be applied to the Lord. And that can also be applied to relations with others. You know, it's wonderful to come and worship. We kind of embrace the Lord when we do that, basically. Hey, I love you, Jesus. And, oh, just embrace the Lord. There's a time to do that. We need to do that. We get spiritually charged when we do that. But that's not the end of the matter. We need to be sent out. And I really appreciate your pastor really emphasizes that. Wonderful to worship. But then the end of the matter is, well, we need to come down and go out and do things for Jesus. There's a time to embrace and a time to cease from embracing. And and same thing in our relationship with others. There's a time for each. We need to be sensitive to the timing and the seasons of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Then in uh, verse 6, it says, a time to search and a time to give up, or many translations, in fact, most translations, say there's a time to search and a time to lose. So search and, let's deal first with search and give up. Um, There's a time to search and there is a time to uh, give up. Uh, there's a time just to move on for the Lord, but then there's a time also we need to surrender. We need to say, I give up, Lord. You know, my life is yours. Uh, We're many times in a wrestling match, and if we're in a wrestling match with the Lord, the goal is to lose. (laughs) The goal is to allow the Lord to pin us and to have his way. And uh, we need to give up. We need to surrender. And it's interesting here. Again, a lot of translation most say a time to search and a time to lose. Hmm. We don't like that. We don't like losing. We kind of resist that, don't we, in our flesh. Now, um, I kind of hinted at this uh, in the first message, but I'll elaborate more on it now. Uh, I used to be on cross-country Uh, when I was in high school. That was kind of my sport. And it carried over to my adult life for years and years and years and years. I jogged, and now we even walk fast as a a couple. And I used to have kind of a a regimen that I would go through each day, and I would kind of reward myself for the jog, especially if it was on a, a difficult day, either very hot or very cold. I would reward myself, and usually how I'd reward myself is I'd go to a coffee shop and just like Pastor, see, we are of, you know, one mind. In fact, um, I remember, it's very, very funny, um, years ago uh, when we had a different president in the U.S. and you had a different prime minister when it was uh, George W. Bush and Tony Blair, they met together for the first time. And uh, so the reporters were asking, how are you two getting along? And George W. Bush uh, answered kind of uh, um, humorously. He decided he was going to take the humorous approach, and he said, oh, we're getting along fabulously. Uh, We're discovering we have so much in common. We even both use Colgate toothpaste. (laughs) 
And um, so, praise God, Pastor and I are of one spirit. We both love coffee, okay? And um, so I love coffee, and so I would go to the coffee shop to reward myself. And every once in a while, uh, but on a fairly regular basis, because I would tend to jog about the same time each day, I would meet the same fellow there at the coffee shop. And um, we would talk for a while. And he was a very, very interesting fellow because he was formerly a boxer, okay, professional boxer. Not a really big name, but, you know, he did okay. He maybe won about 50% of the time, and 50% of the time he'd lose. So uh, I don't even remember his name. But, um, you know, he was a boxer, and or had been. And then he shared, because he was a good deal older than, uh, you know, what you would expect from a boxer. So he said he used to box. And then after that, he became a referee for boxing matches. And uh, then after that, a judge of boxing matches. And I kind of learned quite a lot from him because I said, oh, that's interesting. Started off as a boxer and then referee and then judge. And he said, yeah, that's actually pretty typical. That And I had never thought of it before. I didn't know that, that a lot of times, you know, boxers, they get a certain age, and obviously they're not what they once were. But, you know, think about it, and this is, I'm just quoting him, to be a referee, sometimes you have to be strong enough to break up the boxers and strong enough so that they will respect you. And it kind of makes sense, you know, you need to be in quite good shape. You also have to have a, a good knowledge of boxing, to know when it's time to break up and so forth. And then the same, same idea when you get much older, okay, maybe it's a little bit much to try to break up these 25 and 30-year-olds, so you're no longer able to do that easily as a referee, but you still know boxing and you become a judge. I didn't realize that there was that progression, so he taught me. And so anyway, I said to him, wow, that must have been difficult as a referee having to break up uh, those really strong guys. And he said, well, no, it wasn't too bad really, but there was one aspect um, of uh, judging and one aspect of refereeing that he didn't like. And it really kind of, it sort of surprised me what he said, but uh, I was amazed that it was really the thing that he least liked. So I asked him, well, what's that? And he said, well at least in terms of the famous fights, about 20% of them are fixed. You know, almost 20%, he put it out. And I thought, wow, you know, that's pretty high. And he said, yeah, especially because, again, they're some of the famous fights because that's when organized crime tends to get involved and there's the most money involved. And I said, well, you know, would you mind uh, telling me what some of the fixed fights, at least in your opinion, have been. And wow, they were some pretty big fights. And he told me, you know, what had happened. And, and one of the ones uh, he mentioned was the second fight between Muhammad Ali and uh, Sonny Liston. Okay, the second fight. And uh, Sonny, now kind of an easy one in the sense that Sonny Liston later admitted to, I believe his name was Mark Cram from Sports Illustrated, he later admitted that he threw the fight, okay? And when uh, Sports Illustrated asked him why he threw the fight, why he took a dive, he said, well, Muhammad Ali was crazy, I was scared of him, and he had a lot of Muslim thugs, and I, I was scared, scared of them, okay? 
And, um, and it, it is kind of suspicious because apparently after Liston went down, Muhammad Ali went to his handlers and because it's called the Phantom Punch. That's what is most famous about this fight. It's called the Phantom Punch. And Muhammad Ali asked his handlers, because Liston was down, he said, did I hit him? Now, you know, that's suspicious. You know, let, let, let's face it. Okay. Now, adding to that, adding to Liston's confession and uh, what Ali said afterwards, all the great fighters of the time either saw it in person or saw it on tape and were asked, real fight or fake fight? So Joe Lewis, and everyone knows Joe Lewis, very famous heavyweight fighter, you know, of years ago, he was asked, um, real fight or fake fight? Joe Lewis said, fake fight. Jack Dempsey was asked, real fight or fake fight? Jack Dempsey said, fake fight. Um, Floyd Patterson was asked, real fight or fake fight? Fake fight. Rocky Marciano was asked, real fight or fake fight? He said, fake fight. Gene Tunney, I mean, these are like all the who's who of the heavyweight champions. Real fight or fake fight? And uh, Floyd, uh, excuse me, Gene Tunney said fake fight. And then George Chavallo, who was like the number one or two contender at the time, was asked, real fight or fake fight? He said, fake fight. And it was a, a very suspicious. And in addition, even the FBI investigated the first Ali-Liston fight because it turns out Liston bet a million dollars that Ali would win the fight, which... <laughs> Just a little bit suspicious, okay? Well, all that to say, as I was talking with this fellow who had been a boxer, judge, and referee, you know, it really hit me, wow, life is not fair sometimes. In fact, I remember watching the Ali Foreman fight, George Foreman, who later became a Christian and a minister. Uh, I remember watching the fight, and as it got toward the end, I looked and I thought, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Foreman looks drugged. He does not look normal. He looks dazed. He's responding like he's drugged. And sure enough, after Foreman lost the fight, he accused his manager of drugging him. And watch it sometime. I mean, it is bizarre. And Foreman, you know, has basically been very gracious about it and said, well, I should have beat him even though I was drugged and, you know, so on and so forth. I don't know about that. Um, but in any case, Sports Illustrated, because what happened is even though Foreman lost, because remember, we're talking about a time to lose, that was what God used to bring George Foreman to Christ. So Sports Illustrated even did an article comparing who really won the fight. And they weren't talking about the real fight. They were talking about life. Because George Foreman became a born-again Christian, and he became a minister. He had his own church, and he was very, very happy. And Muhammad Ali, sadly, we know what happened to him physically. He was a mask of a man. I mean, it was, real, it was hard to watch him because he was, you know, just not in good shape. It was sad. And basically, Sports Illustrated said, well, uh, Ali won the fight in the ring. But who won the fight in life? George Foreman. And you know that happens, and George Foreman says that's the best thing that ever happened to me, was losing that fight, be, you know, drugged or whatever. And, you know, we're not here to say whether he was or wasn't. Who knows? 
Okay, but he, you know, he said he was, and but God used that to draw him to Christ. With me, I, I had a lot of losses in life. That is what brought me to Christ for some of you. Some of us had some real losses, and that's what brought us to Christ. There's a time to win. There is sometimes a time to lose that we might either become Christians or become much closer to Jesus Christ. God turns it around. Amen. God turns it around. So what seems to be a loss, God can turn around so it is actually victory. Amen. Verse 7, a time to tear and a time to mend a time to be silent, and a time to speak. Now, it's interesting. A time to be silent, and a time to speak. Is the, Which one of these is mine, sweetheart? Okay, thank you, beautiful. And, uh, you know, sometimes we need to realize, again, there's a time to be silent, a time to speak even with the Lord. Sometimes people are so busy with their... Christmas list, so to speak, speaking to the Lord that they don't hear God. And I've said it before behind this pulpit, the older I get, the more I realize the most important part of praying is listening. He's got a whole lot more important intelligent things to say than I do. I'll tell you that. And you know what? One of the things I love about the Lord is that you probably have never heard this before, but I've really thought about it. The Lord... Uh, I think kind of operates similar in some ways, at least in terms of his direction, to a GPS. And what I mean by that is if you've ever used uh, Google Maps or whatever, and you know, you're, you're driving along and you take a wrong turn, okay, immediately Google Maps adjusts and says what you need to do to get back on the route. You take a right turn, and if it were just us without the GPS, Oh my goodness, what do I do now? I don't know this town or whatever the case may be. Do I take a right or, okay, I'll take a right. Whoops, a roundabout, this is not where I want to go. Or, whoops, I'm on a bridge. Oh my goodness, now I'm not even going to be on the same side of the river. That's what sometimes can happen to us without a GPS. But with a GPS, even when we take a wrong turn, Google Maps, you know, Siri will speak and say, okay, then take a left at the next street and take another left and will reroute us to get us back on the right route as soon as possible. And you know what? God is like that. Some of us are grieving today because we're thinking life has taken a wrong turn for me. Life has taken a wrong turn. I am not on the route that was presented as the perfect route. I got off somehow. Thank you, Jesus, that is not the end of the matter. And many times it's so easy just to get on the right route. So many times we'll be on the expressway and, oh, we were talking, missed the exit. Okay. And, you know, we love to fellowship and everything, but, you know, sometimes we get carried away, we miss the exit, and we'll, I'll go, oh, no. And then Siri will say, Take the next exit, and it's basically the same thing. It really didn't matter much what exit I got off at. I didn't realize that, but GPS lets me know. And God is the same way. Just because either life has dealt us a wrong turn, 
or we in our own mistakes have taken a wrong turn, hallelujah, if we plug into God and don't panic. Some of us, you know, if I were to go like we're on the freeway and we miss our exit, if I'm going, oh, no, (laughs) maybe Siri will speak and I'll be so busy getting upset that I'll miss Siri speaking. I'll just get off at the next exit. No big deal. And that's like life. So many times things don't go right. We don't get off at the right exit. We go, oh. And meanwhile, God is speaking. Just get off at the next exit, silly. I'm strong. Whatever mistake you've made, I am bigger. Whatever misfortune has happened in our lives that has brought us on the wrong path, God is bigger. And praise God, he can put us on the right path a lot of times easier than we think. Amen? Amen. 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 Now we come to verse 8. Verse 8 says, A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now, as I say this, I um, need to preface this. Um, because there may be some Swedes among us. Maybe not, but, you know, if you're Swede, you know, just take this graciously. I love Sweden. I I love ABBA. (laughs) You know, the singing group, okay? I love Swedish meatballs and all that. And I also think the uh, teaching of Scripture... I also think the teaching of Scripture is that the over, and this is, you know, just as I interpret Scripture, but I think overwhelmingly you'll probably agree, that the teaching of Scripture is such, I mean, Jesus says, turn the other cheek, and so forth. There are a lot of times he could have resisted but did not, and he went to the cross. I think scripturally speaking, the teaching of the Bible is that the overwhelming majority of war is unjustified and needless. Human beings go to war all the time, and there was a way to avoid war. But Scripture is clear here that there are some times for war, and uh, this is a good time to mention it because we just had D-Day. And I'm sorry, uh, with all due respect to, look, on the whole, I'm a pacifist, okay? But when you're up against people like Hitler and Mussolini, who are committing acts of genocide by the millions, they have to be stopped. Okay, you just can't sit by and allow it to happen. Okay, and um, and again, Bible is clear here, time for war, time for peace. I think the vast majority of time, the overwhelming majority of time, it's time for peace. Okay, uh, but when it's a Hitler and Mussolini, you just can't, you know, that seems to be the teaching of scripture. And uh, it's interesting because um, we uh, have ministered in Sweden, and of course, uh, uh, Sweden in World War II was what they called neutral. And I remember hearing uh, their explanation that they've kind of wrestled with their neutrality. And also, I write a lot of history books, so I was very interested in what they had to say about their uh, uh, neutrality in uh, World War II, or so-called neutrality. And they explained that they struggled with it, especially during World War II, because they allowed Germans to uh, 
Germany asked them for permission to go through their land to attack Norway. And Sweden said, sure. Uh, and then later, uh, they, at the end of the war, when the Allies were winning, uh, they helped with finding out where Jewish, some Jewish concentration camps were. And they called that neutrality. Well, as you might imagine, when Sweden allowed German forces to just go at will through Sweden to attack Norway, Winston Churchill and the leaders of Norway went through the roof, okay, and said, that is not neutrality, okay? That's like uh, when the Germans are winning, we're on the German side, and when the Allies are winning, we are on the Allied side. So Churchill and the leaders of Norway felt betrayed by Sweden's actions. And, uh, yeah, I, I must admit, I don't call that neutrality uh, either. I mean, it would be much like, and here's my man, Manchester United analogy. Let's just say you uh, meet someone and you ask them, you know, especially me as an American, I'm kind of curious, you know, what, what, what team do you like? Okay. And uh, someone might say, uh, I might ask, oh, what, you know, what do you think of Manchester United? And uh, the person might say, well, I'm neutral. Okay, and then I might ask them, well, what do you mean by neutral? Oh, well, they were playing the other day, and they were playing, and the other team scored first and took the lead one to nothing, so I started cheering for the other team. Yeah, beat Manchester United, beat them into the ground. And it sounds like some people in this corner can relate to that, okay? And, but, when Manchester United came back, tied the score, and took the lead two to one, I was going, go, Manchester United! Now, I'm sorry, I would look at that and say, that's not neutral. That's taking the side of whoever winning, okay? When Manchester United is losing, you take the side of the other team, and when they're winning, you take the side of Manchester United, and kind of the same with the Germans. You know, when the Germans are winning at the beginning of the war, oh, yeah, use our land, go, yeah, 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 tax Sweden, go for it, okay? But when the Allies are winning, oh, then we'll try to find out where the concentration camps are. Now, you also know I'm a professor, so you'll have to forgive me here. I'm going to use a really academic word. We have a word for that in academics, the Swedish response. And here's the academic word. Get ready. If you don't like academic words, here's the word. Scared. <laughs> okay, they were scared. They were scared when they're scared of the Germans. Oh, yeah, yeah, use our land. When they realize the Allies are going to win. Oh, sure, sure, we'll help you. Okay, we call that scared. But we need to realize there's a season for each the, the Bible teaches that we need to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. That really should be a, uh, a term that is associated with we as Christians. We need to be peacemakers. We need to bring people together. Many times people fight because of bitterness or misunderstandings. There are all kinds of reasons we... We should try to bring people together. And not just taking stands regarding nations. I mean, this is a lot of what my wife and I do in marital counseling. It's bringing two people together that don't need to be fighting. And that should be who we are uh, in working with individuals, bringing people together and not adding to conflicts, not backbiting, not talking behind people's backs. That adds to conflict. We need to bring people together. However, 
on very rare occasions, it's time to stand up and say, "Uh uh-uh, this is so totally wrong. We just can't say, oh, so what, so okay, abortion, let it go, big deal. It is a big deal. That is a human life. That's where we need to take a stand and say, "Uh uh-uh, that's wrong. Okay, there are times that we need to take a stand. There are other times that, hey, you know, let's bring everyone together and, you know, let's have harmony. We need to realize there is a time for each. So praise God. I believe that each one of us, and as a church, we need to understand whatever season or seasons we are in. Appreciate each one, not fight it. If it's July and August, you can wear as many fur coats as you want, and it's still going to be hot. I'm just telling you, it's not going to snow, okay? We need to go with the seasons and understand the seasons and get the most out of each season that we're in. We'll do far better if we don't fight the seasons of God, but appreciate them and try to get the most out of each season we're in. And I believe we're headed into an exciting season here. You know, we see that this church is a church of prayer. I know the people who pray for us, a lot of people here are people of prayer. But praise God, I also believe we're reaching a season where it's time for action. And I believe we need to shine as a light and make a greater impact on Cambridge than we ever have before. Amen? Amen. 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 Let us pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless, and goodbye.